This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. The remainder of this week, we bring you four messages former MBI president Paul Nyquist delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 to 2014. Paul Nyquist is a pastor, author, former president of the Moody Bible Institute, and currently dean of graduate programs and professor at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Now, here is Paul Nyquist on Today in the Word radio. I think one of the top privileges I have as president is to be able to kick off opening night at Founders Week. And I am so excited for the lineup of speakers and musicians we have this week. I think this is going to be an incredible week of ministry. And so I'm so glad that you are here to be part of it. Our theme this week is Knowing Christ. And I have yet to meet another believer who would not say that they don't know, they want, they don't know how to know Christ better. I've, I've yet to meet another Christian who would admit that they don't want to go deeper with Christ. Now, you may know some. I mean, they might be in your church. But I don't know any. Every Christian I've run into says they want to know Christ better. And I believe that desire is genuine. I think that's true for all of us. That we all want to know Him better. That we all want to know Him more intimately. That we all want to know Him better. So as the years go by, it grows sweeter and deeper with our Lord. But we also know that that's not always the case. That we know that even though our desire is that the years go by and it goes deeper and sweeter, that oftentimes we hit a plateau. That we initiate this relationship with Jesus Christ when we come to Him in faith, and it's wonderful, but it never grows into what we might call intimacy. Instead, it just hits a certain level, maybe, maybe a step or two above superficiality, 
and stays there. Year after year after year after year, stuck. And the most disturbing thing is we don't know why. We read our Bible and we memorize our verses. We serve in our church and we teach Sunday school. We download messages from Moody Radio and listen to them religiously. We do all the right things, and yet none of that seems to move the needle in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We know more, but we don't know Him more. We go deeper into the Word, but we don't go deeper with our Lord. Why is that? Why is it that we can do all the right things and yet stagnate in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Why does that happen? What is it that's keeping us from more intimacy with our Lord? Well, we're going to see the answer as we spend some time with the Apostle Paul tonight. Because if there's someone who grew intimate with his Lord, it was Paul. If there's someone who knew Christ well, it was this former persecutor from Tarsus. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul shares some of the details of his life. He wraps this around his testimony. But if we dig into those details and do so very carefully, we can discover the key. But it's not what you might think. Because we're going to see the key is not doing something, it's deciding something. That the key is not gaining something, it's giving something up. Therefore, we're going to see that until we come to that decision, no matter what else we do, we will never get intimate with our Lord. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would. Philippians, the third chapter. And the passage we're going to be looking at tonight is found in verses 4 through 10. We're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 4 and go all the way down through verse 10. And let me read this passage for you, beginning in the middle of verse 4. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, this is a pretty complicated passage. In fact, the last three verses are all one long convoluted sentence by Paul with clauses and subclauses. So to help you not get lost in the weeds, let me tell you what we're going to see. First, we're going to see what Paul considered gain. We're going to see that in the first three verses. Then we're going to see why Paul considered that loss. That's in the middle two verses. And then finally, we're going to see why Paul felt that kind of decision was necessary. And we're going to see that in the last two verses. In other words, this flows much like an accounting statement. First the gain, then the loss, and finally the bottom line. So let's start with the gain. Let's start on the positive side of the ledger. And this contains privileges and advantages that life often presents to us. We all have them. It's gain. Some of these are privileges that came as a result of our birth. Others are achievements that we have had in life. But we all have gain, and Paul had them in spades. Notice the things that he mentions, beginning in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul reviews his resume here, and it's impressive. He mentions five things here which compared to most of his countrymen, would have put him head and shoulders above them. Two of these were inherited advantages. Three of them were earned as a result of hard work. First, he mentions his right. He says, the right of circumcision. Circumcise the eighth day. Uh, This would put him in the covenant community of Abraham. As you know, the law of Moses required that a male child be circumcised on the eighth day as a physical sign of the covenant. Paul says, I've got that. Check. Secondly, he mentions his race. He says, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This meant that he was born a member of that covenant community. He was not an outsider. He was not a proselyte who came to understand the truth and then joined the club. No, he was a full-blooded member of the Israelites, a Hebrew. Check. Next, he mentions his religion. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, this would put him in a more exclusive fraternity. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says there were around 6,000 Pharisees. And that was because they had to take a vow where they would follow not only the law of Moses, but also the hundreds of other laws that they felt kept them pure. So Paul says, I'm not only a Jew, I'm a Pharisee. Check. 
Fourth, he mentions his reputation. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And of course, you see this in Acts chapter 9. You see there that Paul was not just a Pharisee. He would be, as one said, a Pharisaic terrorist. I mean, with his zeal for the traditions, he wanted to obliterate the church. And so he hunted down believers like animals and then took great glee in seeing them killed. Check. Then finally, he mentions his righteousness. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Notice he doesn't say sinless. He says blameless. As it comes to the law and keeping the law, and not only the law, but also the 613 other laws and commandments that came through Judaism, Paul says, I kept them all. Blameless. Check. So add this up. This is impressive. I mean, Paul mentions these things that would have kept him above anybody else in his environment. I mean, you want gain? You want prestige? Paul had it. If uh, the celebrity magazines like us and people were operating back then, Paul would have been on their cover frequently. He had gain. Now let's stop for a moment and move that into our world because advantages and privileges were not just a first century phenomenon. We have them today. Some of us might be able to rival Paul's resume. Most of us can't. But we can all point to things in our present or in our past which we could consider to be gain. Some of these maybe we were born with by God's grace, maybe others that we have achieved in life. Some have more, some have less, but we all have gain. For instance, maybe, maybe you have an impressive family legacy. Maybe you have one of those notable names. The story is told of a young man from Boston who applied for a job at a Chicago investment house. And as part of the procedure, he asked, they asked for a reference letter to be sent. And so he arranged for a reference letter to be sent from a Boston bank. And this letter came to the Chicago investment house and said, This young man's father is a Cabot. His mother is a Peabody. And in his background are some of the finest families in all of New England. And we would recommend that he be hired without any reservation. Well, the Chicago investment house wrote back to that Boston bank and said that their letter was wholly inadequate. Because they said, we do not plan to use this young man for breeding purposes. (laughs) Just for work. But maybe you have an impressive family legacy. Or maybe you have an impressive list of letters after your name. Maybe it looks like somebody spilled alphabet soup all over your business card. With all your credentials and your academic degrees. A friend of mine from seminary, Ramesh Richard, is one of those rare birds who has not one but two earned doctorates. But I appreciate his attitude toward them. He says, the THD stands for total head damage. And the PhD stands for permanent head damage. Maybe you have an impressive list of letters after your name. 
Or maybe, not just an impressive list of letters, but maybe you have an impressive position or a title. Maybe you have one of those titles that gets people's attention. Here's the title of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire in 1909. I mean, here was his full name and title. Get this. His Imperial Majesty, the Sultan Abdul Hamid II Khan, Emperor of the Ottomans, Sultan of Sultans, Khan of Khans, Commander of the Faithful, and Successor of the Prophet of the Lord of the Universe, Protector of the Holy Cities of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Try and put that on your letterhead. But maybe you have an impressive position or title. Or or maybe you're just well-known in your community. Maybe it's not a big town, but, you know, you're the proverbial big fish in a small pond. You know, you're the football coach. You're the pastor of the local church. You're the owner of the Dairy Queen on the edge of town. And everybody knows you. When you walk up and down the streets, it's like cheers. Everybody knows your name. My point is, we all have gain. Some have more, some have less, but we all have gain. And that's not bad. It's not wrong to be born into a family of privilege. It's not bad to achieve a number of things in your life. It's not wrong to have academic degrees. That's not wrong. It's gain. It's the kind of stuff that will appear in your obituary when you die. But Paul goes on in our passage to explain to us that after we come to faith in Christ, that we need to look on this gain differently. And specifically, we need to look at this gain as loss. He says this in verse 7. But, and that's a strong adversative in the text, but whatever things were gained in me, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, I used to count them as gain, but he says, now I count them as loss. And the word count is an accounting term. It means to mark down in a ledger. So he says, I used to record these on the positive side of the ledger. But he says, now I record them on the negative side of the ledger. I used to consider them to be gain. But now I consider them to be loss. Now, Paul didn't have to lose all of this. Some of us did, some of us didn't. But it shows here that he looked at them differently. He valued them differently. He considered them differently. He counted them differently. Before he saw them as gain, now he saw them as loss. Before they were important to them, now he, they weren't important to him. Before he considered them to be valuable, now they were not valuable. And that's a strong enough statement in itself. But he goes on in this passage to restate that two more times And both times he expands it and he intensifies it. First he says, I consider all this to be gain, to now be lost. But notice he goes on to say in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost. Before he said, I count all this that was gain to be lost. Now he says, I count all things 
to be laws. And this would refer to things that he hadn't mentioned above, like maybe his Roman citizenship, perhaps his material possessions, maybe his training under Gamaliel, whatever. He says, now I count all things to be laws. And then he intensifies it even more when in the middle of verse 8 he says, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Your translation may read something different there. It may read refuse. It may read dung. But this is the Greek word skubala, which is only used this one time in the entire New Testament, and it's borderline vulgar. It's a word that was often used to refer to human excrement. It referred to the foul-smelling filth that you would kick out in the street to be forged by dogs. I've walked through villages in this world where the stench from the streets is so strong that you have to breathe through your mouth in order to not lose your lunch. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, I consider not just gain, but all things to be lost. More than lost, it's it's dung. Now, why would Paul say that? I mean, wasn't he grateful? Did he not appreciate all the things that he had done in his life and who he was? Did he not value the fact that he was part of the Jews? Well, I think he did. But it's just that he came to value something else much more. And that was knowing Jesus. He makes a comparative statement there in the middle of verse 8. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so he makes this comparative statement. He recognizes and admits that this had value. But he says, compared to this, it has no value. It's worth nothing because this has so much value. And what is this? It's it's knowing Jesus, my Lord. And please note the last two words in that sentence. My Lord. Earlier in this epistle, he explained what it meant for Jesus to be called the Lord. Remember the kenosis passage in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where it says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he explains here about the, 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 the honor and the glory that goes with being the Lord, that he has a name above every other name, that he is a being of which everyone is going to bow down in homage. He says, that's the Lord. But what he says here in Philippians 3, is not just the Lord, he is my Lord. And don't miss that. Because that's the only time in the Bible Paul says that. The only time. 
He's my Lord. Showing deep personal feeling. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. And the word know here carries within an Old Testament sense. It doesn't mean to know something intellectually, like maybe you would know math or physics. You say, Paul, I do not have an intellectual knowledge of math or physics. Okay, pick your subject. But it doesn't mean that. Said he's referring to an experiential knowledge, like you would have of a person, a husband, a wife, a child, a grandchild. And as you know, this, this kind of knowledge is not static, it's dynamic, it's constantly growing, it's constantly developing, it's constantly becoming more intimate. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He says, I want to know my Lord. He came to a personal knowledge of Christ on the Damascus Road. But now he says, I want to know him completely. I want to know him fully. I want to know him. And friends, that's the highest pursuit in life. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. God says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he know and understand me. You can throw yourself into that pursuit and you will never exhaust his being. You can know him better and better. You can go into the depths of his being and you'll find that he always goes deeper. There's always more to love. There's always more to understand. There's always more to know. You can sit down with me in 15 minutes and probably get bored. You'd probably say, that's it. That's all you got. But they wouldn't have with Jesus. You can know him better and better and better and better. And there's still more to know. But here's my point. You can't get there unless you first consider all your gain to be loss. All of it. That's all dumb. Now the question we might ask is, why? Why should we have to do that? Why should we have to consider all that to be loss and dung? Why? Well, here's why. Because it's that gain that is preventing you from knowing Jesus better. It's that gain that is keeping you, inhibiting you from knowing Christ more intimately. And that's what Paul goes on to explain in the final two verses of this passage. And you have to track with me here. Because he's going to give us two different explanatory statements of what it means to know Christ. Two different explanations. The first one is positional in nature. The second is practical in nature. First, he explains that knowing Christ means we share in his righteousness. Look at verse 9. Picking it up at the very end of verse 8. He says, In order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He explains here first that knowing Christ means we share in his righteousness. And he tells us here this is not a righteousness that we get on our own basis. It's a righteousness that comes from God. It's not a righteousness that comes through conformity to the law. It's a righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. This is justification. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, when he said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And this is a knowledge of God, a knowledge of Christ, but it's an initial and positional knowledge of Christ. And Paul wanted more. So he goes on to give us a second explanation of what it means to know Christ. The first one is positional. The second one is practical. And what he tells us secondly is knowing Christ is not not only sharing in his righteousness, it also means sharing in his sufferings. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here he explains that knowing Christ means we know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To know Christ means we share in his sufferings. That's what it means to know him because that's who he is. He is the suffering servant. He's the man of sorrows. 2,700 years ago. The prophet Isaiah described the Messiah like this in Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. And we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his scourging, we are healed. That's who he is, and that's what he did. He suffered. And therefore, to know Christ intimately means we share in his sufferings. Because that's who he is. In Philippians 3, Paul says, we are to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And the word fellowship is the word koinonia, which means to participate in or to share in. And earlier in this epistle, Paul shared that this is God's design for believers. Back in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also... To suffer for his sake. 
And as we do this, as we suffer for him, we come to know the power of his resurrection. As we suffer for him, we come to learn and understand his divine enablement. As we suffer for him, we come to know how he can carry us along in ways that we never would have imagined. And as we do all of that, as we suffer for him, as he carries us along, as we learn about his great power, we then be conformed to his image. Because at the end of verse 10, he says, being conformed to his death. And that's a present tense verb, which means that while all this is going on, that we are continually, constantly being conformed to who he is. So that the more that we know him, the more we become like him. And the more that we become like him, the more we know him. And Paul says, that's my highest goal, to know him. And that is to be our highest goal as well. And that is to know him better and better, and better, and better. And then to become like him. Now, if that's so, then what's keeping us from that? What is preventing us from knowing Christ better and better and sharing in his sufferings? Answer, the gain in our life. The privileges and advantages we've come to enjoy. You might say, I don't follow. Connect the dots for me here so I can see how this works. Well, here's how. The gain in our life prevents us from knowing Christ better because we don't want to give it up in suffering. The gain in our life inhibits us from knowing Christ intimately because we don't want to lose that or give it up when we suffer. And normally, that's what is sacrificed when you suffer. It's your gain. It's your position. It's your privileges. It's your reputation. That is normally what is sacrificed when you suffer. That was true of the Apostle Paul. He went from being one of the rising stars in Judaism and on the cover of all the tabloids to being a hated man with a price on his head. He went from being the Pharisee of the Pharisees to the humility and indignity of being left in a basket over the edge of a wall to escape. He went from being the arrester of Christians to being the one arrested. He he suffered ridicule and abuse. You know the litany of things that he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I was beaten times without number. Five times, 39 lashes. Three times, beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. And he goes on and on. And he died, mostly forsaken, in a grisly execution in a Roman prison. But in that process, something else happened as well. And that is he came to know Jesus better because he shared in his sufferings and he came to know the power of his resurrection. 
The same thing is true for other saints around this world who are experiencing the same thing. I've had the privilege of sitting down with so many of them. I think of Mustafa, a longtime leader of the underground church in North Africa, a man who walks with a permanent limp because of the beatings he took in prison for his faith. Mustafa and many, many other faces. Most of these believers had very little gain to begin with, but whatever they had was lost in their suffering for Christ. But I found as I met them that they gained something else, and that is they knew Jesus better than me and better than most Western Christians. That's because they had shared in his sufferings, and they became to know the power of his resurrection. But here's my point. We will never go there. We will never choose to share in his sufferings if we first don't say all the gain is lost. Because we won't want to give it up. And therefore, we'll be content to just stay superficial in our relationship with Christ because we like our gain. We like our stuff. And we don't want to give it up. So let me ask you, what are you holding dear in life? What part of your pedigree are you protecting? What would you consider too valuable to lose? Name it. Identify it. Because that's what's keeping you from becoming more intimate with your Savior. You're considering that more valuable than knowing Him. So what is it? Is it your, your financial future, your business Uh, your reputation in the world, your academics, your credentials. What is it? Name it. Identify it. And know it's that gain that is keeping you from becoming more intimate with your Savior. I think of my life, two things immediately come to my mind. There's probably much more. But I think of my health. I'm a pretty healthy guy. I always have been. I have a full physical every year. The doctors can never find anything wrong. I've got perfect blood pressure. I'm not on any medications whatsoever. I haven't even been in the hospital overnight since I was born. That's part of my gain. That's part of my genetic pedigree. But the question is, would I be willing to give that up? Would I be willing to suffer broken health to suffer for him? Would I be willing to sacrifice that if I could know Jesus better? Or here's another one. I have one of the coolest jobs in the world. I get to serve in the leadership of the Moody Bible Institute, which is this amazing organization that has a reach all around this world. That's part of my gain. It's part of my professional and academic pedigree. But would I be willing to give that up to suffer 
Would I be willing to sacrifice that to know Jesus more? Or do I consider that too valuable to lose? See, that's my stuff. What's your stuff? What are you holding dear in life? What part of your pedigree are you protecting? What do you consider too valuable to lose? Name it, identify it, and know that's what's keeping you from a more intimacy with Christ. Because until you consider all your gain to be lost, you will never be willing to give it up. And if you're not willing to give it up, you will not be willing to suffer for him. If you're not willing to suffer for him, you will never know him intimately. But if you do want that, what God says is, count it all loss. All of it. Make a decision that none of this matters if I can know Jesus better. Draw a a line in the sand and say, if all of this goes away, if it all disappears, that's okay if I can know Jesus better. Now, God may not ask you to, to lose all that. He has different plans for different people. But if he does or if he doesn't, it won't matter to you because you've made a decision. That it's all loss. And I want to know Christ better. That is my highest ambition. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know the power of his glory. I want to know him. And if so, God says, count it all loss. Count it all loss. So that you can gain Christ. Let's pray together. Father, our heart's desire is to know Jesus better. Our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord. We admit that our gain gets in the way because we can't share in the sufferings and give that stuff up because we we cling to it too tightly we don't we consider it too valuable we don't want to lose it as a result we never get to know the one who was a suffering servant and we never know the power of his resurrection that he displays in our life when we suffer. Father, this is different for each person here. We all have different kinds of gain, but we all need to come to that point where you say it's all loss, it's all dung in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages former MBI president Paul Nyquist delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 through 2014. Paul Nyquist is a pastor, author, former president of Moody Bible Institute, and currently dean of graduate programs and professor at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. 
Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.